Good morning, church. Amen. Amen. Just to remind you all, I'm from the Southern Baptist Church, so when I ask you all a question, I mean that. All right? Okay, amen. You can say amen, you know what I'm saying? That's okay too. Amen is uh, permissible. <laughs> uh, I have uh, the privilege and honor of um, sh- uh, being invited into this pulpit, and I bring, uh, I carry with it a weightedness, um, knowing that despite my best preparation, it is the Holy Spirit that I trust to. Uh, allow whatever is meant to be absorbed by you from the scripture to be absorbed, and whatever is not to be forgotten as soon as you touch those doors. Amen? So with that, um, receive with grace my words and my attempts to be obedient to that weight and that mantle and that charge um, that comes with the sacredness of this pulpit. So, uh, it's Black History Month. Uh, And yes, uh, that is the month of February, but uh, as we all know, there is no North American history without black history. And yes, I will always be a proponent for black history being taught throughout the year, but what I can do is honor the fact that Black History Month gives us an opportunity to talk specifically about the original sins that we have yet to fully repent of in this country. It's one of those things where it's, if you're married, it's not that you never celebrate your wife or your, or your husband or your partner, but maybe you might do it especially on your anniversary. Can I get an amen to anybody that knows what it's like to not be in the doghouse? Okay. So in that same heart, almost treating it like an anniversary, I'm going to take some time to deal with a question in this series. And the question is, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? In a word... Yes, but not how North America does it. There's a term I want to introduce you, uh, you know, I used to, I, not used to, I still listen to them sometimes, but gospel Christian artists, anybody ever heard of Lecrae or, yes, amen, thank you for interacting with me, yes. The energy you get is the energy you give, amen, so like, yes or no, do you know what a gospel Christian artist is? A rapper, yes? Okay. I used to listen to a guy named Flame all the time, one of my favorite rappers. I met him. Awesome. Dope dude. Um, a lot of gospel artists that worked with Cross Movement or people like uh, Flame and the like or Andy Mineo is that uh, part of the requirement for them to preach uh, through their raps was they had to go to seminary or at least to be signed to the label. Right? And so the raps that you would hear, that I would hear as a kid, were essentially like these preterm papers. Like, like they would be learning about like, you know, um, uh, perichoresis or learning about, you know, uh, soteriology, you know, which is the study of salvation, or eschatological imagination, which is the, the like, what image, images come to mind that scripture gives you when you think of the end times, right? So like all these things, I'm like, I'm hearing all these words, you know, from these educated brothers. And um, one, one uh, song that I heard called Context by Flame uh, was about this, this term I want to introduce you. It's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics? Yes, hermeneutics. It, it is the art and science of biblical interpretation. Okay. Now remember, the sermon title today is Doesn't the Bible Condone Slavery? And I said yes with a, the best intonation of a question mark. Okay. Because I think what I have to name before we continue in this, in this sermon is that there is an art and science to biblical interpretation that's called hermeneutics. Now, there's two ways to practice hermeneutics, okay? Look at your neighbor and say, um, exegesis. 
Okay, exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. It is essentially the critical explanation or interpretation of a text. Uh, Exegesis basically says uh, an author's text can't mean what he never meant it to mean. Anybody ever like, like go to a symphony or like go to a movie and you're like, this is how I interpreted the character. Anybody ever done that? Come on, anybody seen a Marvel movie? Anybody? Okay, okay. All right. You went to a movie and you're like, oh, like this is this is how I interpreted how, how that what that movie meant. That's not exegesis. Exegesis is saying, what did the director want me to know and want me to feel? Now, there's another term called eisegesis. Eisegesis is the process of interpreting a text in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions, agendas, or biases. Let me, let me say it a little more clearly. Eisegesis is approaching a movie and, like, some, okay, um, anybody ever see, like, um, Doctor Strange or Hulk or, who has not seen those movies? Okay, but you know who they are. You know who they are, right? Iron Man. You know who Iron Man is? Okay, let's start with Iron Man. Eisegesis is going to see Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr., and at the end of the movie you say, you know what, he's actually the villain. (laughs) And let me explain how, right? Which one can make an argument, yes. (laughs) But but he's supposed to be the hero. Amen? Eisegesis is coming into something and saying, no, I see it this way, so therefore that's what it means. Which when it comes to movies, you have that right. You have the room for eisegesis. But the thing about Scripture biblical context is that the scripture and the word of God cannot mean what it was never meant to mean. Meaning that the Holy Spirit inspired word of God had an intended message through the authors who wrote it. Amen? Okay? So we might get into that later in the the year. But my point is that biblical fidelity has to um, have a process and system of preachers who exegetically preach the word of God consistently to all the Christian saints Jewish and Christian alike, right? Gazan and Native American alike, amen? Chinese and Japanese alike, Taiwanese alike, amen? Samoan alike. All the brothers and sisters in Christ all need to be able to hear the word preached as the Lord intended as he inspired the authors who he chose to write it. That's hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation. And it gives us the opportunity to know when someone is misusing the text for what they want it to mean, and for those who are using the text for what God intended it to mean by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So, now that I got that off my chest, uh, we can't use the Bible to tickle our ears or reinforce what we want it to mean. It's like, um, imagine a husband looking at their wife and saying, well, God, the Bible says you have to submit to me. I said, Jesus, Exegesis says, well, let's keep reading that scripture verse, <laughs> right? <laughs> it says, submit to one another, amen? So, so okay, so we're, we're together, okay? So what I mean to say is that we are not called to put our cultural norms into the Bible. Rather, we are called to take the timeless truths in light of the cultural context of scripture and apply them to our time now as the Holy Spirit guides us. Let me say that again. The way we read scripture hermeneutically, exegetically, is that we look at the timeless principles in light of the timely scenarios. So for example, um, let's say someone had multiple wives, like David. Is that a free pass for every man to be a polygamist? 
It's a cultural context, but there's still a timeless principle to be gleaned, even amidst David's concubines, even amidst his uh, going to foul with Bathsheba. There are timeless truths that we can still learn from, and that is what biblical interpretation really looks like. So now back to the question at hand. Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? It is appropriate to seek out first what the Bible says about this question, while also noticing what imagery first comes to mind. Maybe, could you take a moment to notice what first comes to mind when I say slavery? It's rhetorical, you don't have to tell me. But what faces or bodies come to mind? Does it look like African Americans between 1562 to 1865? Does it look like the book of Exodus? Does it look like what's happening now in the Congo? Does it look like what's happening in cobalt mines to make sure the iPads and iPhones and, well, sorry, Apple, the smartphones that we all have to have? Is this the Uyghur people kidnapped wholesale into virtually concentration camps in the corridors of Mongolia? Is it Native Americans reduced to, reduced to just shy of slavery on their own reservations? Is it the evils of sex slavery? I don't know what comes to mind, but there are many iterations of slavery today, and so I do not want to make the mistake that I've seen many of my own educators make during my education, that when we talk about Black History Month, for some reason we only go as far as 1865, or Martin Luther King. But not, nothing happened since then, obviously. My point is that I'm going to use a particular time to talk about. I am going to talk about African-American slavery between 1562 to 1865 this morning. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things happening today. Amen? So with that being said, let's look at the Bible. (laughs) Since I'm pretty sure the first and second testaments were written way earlier than slavery in America. Um, Let's take a look um, first at the picture of slavery given in the Second Testament, uh, the New Testament as we know it, and work our way backwards to the First Testament, or the Old Testament as we call it. So, Revelations 10, oh, 18, 10 to 13. Um, Thank you, Pastor Chris. Um, Let's start first with, what does Revelations say about slavery? In Revelations, anybody familiar with the book, End Times, everything, you know, kind of goes, yeah, okay, great, okay, we're good, okay. <laughs> it goes down in Revelations is my point. If you have a Revelations, you know, p- you know put your big, big girl pants on because it, it gets rough, okay. I'm still scared sometimes. Anyway, Revelations 18, I'll read it to you. You just know where I'm going. 18 is 10 to 13. It's talking about the fall of Babylon, It's talking about the fall of Babylon. It's talking about what happens in light of why Babylon is falling. Verse 10, and the kings, oh, that's verse 9. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. No one buys their cargo of gold, their silver, their jewels, their pearls, their fine linen, their purple cloth, their silk, their scarlet, their scented woods, and all articles of ivory, all kinds of wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Verse 13. 
No one's buying their cinnamon spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots. Verse 13. And slaves. That is human souls. So even in Revelations 18, we see that some of, the, some of the things that are part of the fall of Babylon is that there are things that no one is buying from them. And that slavery is not a good thing here. Amen? Well, let's, let's, let's continue. What about Luke 7, 1 to 10? Um, in this section of scripture, there's a story of uh, a Roman centurion, which is a military leader, like kind of a big, a big one. And the military leader has uh, a slave that he cares for so deeply that he sends people to go find Jesus and basically ask Jesus, please heal my, sl- he- please heal my slave. And we see that Jesus uh, comes to approach the house and another slave is sent to him, another slave is sent to him uh, to essentially say, you know, hey, you don't even have to come to the house. Because I, a Ro- yes, I, a Roman centurion, know that if you just say the word, it shall be so. And Jesus says that of all that I've met in Israel, I've not seen greater faith. Of a non-Jew, a Gentile, an outsider. In contrast to North American slavery, we see such deep care for a servant. Such high regard. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Anybody know what that story is about? I'll find it for you. All those Sunday school classes are coming in handy. 1 Corinthians 12. So, verse 13, what does it say? For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. What 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about is the distribution of the spiritual gifts. Okay? And what it's acknowledging that it, in, uh, what Apostle Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 is the fact that in the church, amongst us, there is no slave or free. There is no, you know what, I'm going skip, to skip farther than my notes. Let me just get this off my chest. Because I was thinking about this all, like, <laughs> all morning, this part. Hi, sweetie. Sorry, that's my baby girl back there. What Paul is striking at in 1 Corinthians 12 is the fact that in the church, look, I grew up in the church, so when I hear neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, like that, it's kind of like I know that, but I don't hear it. You know what I mean? Anybody been in the church long, you hear a verse, and it kind of doesn't absorb as much? Like you don't critically think of it. What Paul is essentially saying in the timeless truth there, at that time, there were slaves and free people in the same church. In that time, there were Greek and Jews who weren't supposed to get along in the same church. That timeless principle, timely to our cultural context, is uh, things like um, male, female, non-binary. Hetero, homo, trans. Black, white, Mexican, American, or Mexican without naturalization papers. Republican or Democrat. There is no Republican or Democrat. There is no Swickley or Wilkinsburg. For inequality is what makes superiority have value. So what what he's getting at in 1 Corinthians 12 is striking at the very heart 
of what slavery in America to this day established. This idea that someone is better than the other. I'm skipping around on you, Chris. Forgive me. Um, did you know, I'll show Chris this in the back. Did you know that um, when there were sla- African-American slaves in this country, did you know there was a time when they were not allowed in the church? Okay, thank you. She knows it. <laughs> so they, so, but do you know what was done during that time? The, the men would bring their guns to church. They would carry their guns in church. You know why? Because if there should ever be a revolt, they would have the only gun from the, from the property. You could put it down, put them down. Afterward, later on, they realized it might be beneficial to, you know, work on the soul of the slave. And so you know what they started to do? Everybody look behind you and look up past the clock. Everybody see that? That's called a balcony. You know, in balconies and churches were designed for slaves to be in the space so you can keep an eye on them. I mean, not a literal eye, but you know what I mean. It's like they got to do a lot of work to get down to your level. You with me? So it was about control, which that very practice was against the very thing in 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul, Apostle Paul was talking about in that context. That would be like us saying, hey, if you don't have your papers, you got to sit up there. That's bogus, right? So, I'm all over the place. I should have rewritten my notes. <laughs> I should have practiced more. Uh, so that's just 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Let's go to another scripture. Let's go to Colossians 3, 11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Again, that may seem like something nuts to you, but even the term barbarian was reserved for people who were seen as like marauders or as seen as other. Sorry, I'm wrong. Barbarian was a term used for anybody that was seen as other. So like um, Steelers fans in the house? So, like, if anyone wasn't a Steelers fan back in that day, it was like, well, they were barbarians. Like, they obviously are, like, savages. Did you see that kind of thinking? Which still kind of lives in some of the sports world today. I'm just going to acknowledge that, okay? But, um, you know, I know there was a Super Bowl recently, so that's why I mentioned that. But my point is, is that even here we see what I just mentioned. Can we go uh, to the next verse? Galatians 3.28. Well, okay, I got ahead of myself. So let's go... (laughs) next here's the thing the common thread is that there's roles we play in society but but these roles we play in society don't change or supersede the narrative of the gospel can i get an amen somebody i know i'm talking fast i talk fast sometimes when i get excited give me some grace but what you got to remember is that the roles in society don't supersede the gospel. That's why the verses that I just showed you are, are speaking about the sense that in the church and as we leave the church, we don't respect these differentiations of value in humans. Within Christ's superiority, we are brethren. Amen? Let me say that again. I don't know. Y'all ain't enthusiastic enough about that truth. In Christ's superiority, we are brethren. Amen? Amen. Anybody ever been bullied? Everybody ever been made to feel less than the people around you? Then let me say it again. Christ's superiority, within it, we are brethren. Amen? Amen? So when the Roman Empire begins to notice that Christians are taking better care of their sick and their homeless than they ever did as an empire, that even the leaders of Rome 
wrote letters to one another that there must be diff- something different about the God of the Christians. So that the sick and the destitute and the non-sick and, and non-destitute all shared in community and shared in the tender care of one another as one does an ailing parent. This was shocking to Rome, Roman leaders, who was deeply like, aligned by class. It was a gut punch to the very class structure of Rome at that time, and all the more a light to the goodness of God in the world and what separates our God from any other God. Amen? We move forward in time, and in the New Testament we see Paul, one of the most ubiquitous writers, Inspired by God to pen most of the stuff we see in the New and Second Testament, we see him begin to identify himself as a slave. Anybody ever read the opening of, a, of an epistle or a, a letter in the New Testament where it says, I, Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Anybody ever hear, hear this language? If you don't believe me, go check it out. <laughs> but he often refers to himself as a slave. To whom? To Christ. So does the Bible condone slavery? Uh, sort of. <laughs> it, yes, it condones slavery to a good master. Actually, it, it, it actually says that you got one of two masters. The enemy of your souls or the one who sent his son to die for him. Amen. That the, the Bible does as, uh, assume that there is mastery we all submit to. We're Americans, North Americans, forgive me. There's things that we submit to, not just by the county, but by the federal law that we have to submit to that have control over us. Amen? But again, I digress. So anybody ever heard of Genesis 15.5? I'm going to dive us into the Old Testament now. And I want to unpack the complexity of this question, does the Bible condone slavery? Because I may be doing my best, my best to try to help you understand the distinction, but I think Scripture always does it better than any preacher can. And so in Genesis 15:5, we see a promise made. A promise made to someone named Abraham. Look at your neighbor and say, that's a patriarch. In Genesis 15:5, he took him outside speaking of God, and said to Abraham, this is the God of the cosmos, the God who breathed breath into the nostrils of of Adam after forming him out of clay, the God who established his partner, his bride, Eve, from the rib, right? This is the God who made fish and filled the sea, who made birds to fill the air, who made critters to go on the ground, who made the snake snake not have legs because it ticked him off, all right? And so, like, you know what I mean? That's an understatement. My point is, this is the God that is speaking to a man and says this, look up at the sky and count the stars. I know in Pittsburgh it's hard to see stars. It looks like there's only like maybe a dozen or so. But if you've ever been out, out of the Allegheny County and out from the city and you look up in, in the dark, you can't count them. And this God says, look up at the sky and count the stars. If you indeed, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Let me ask you this. What do you think a promise like that usually starts with? Come on. I got it up here. Anybody else know the answer? You got it right. What does that usually start with? A. A baby. You got to start with a baby, right? 
Come on, people of God. You know that, you know, a prophet's like that. You got to start somewhere. I mean, you want to go too far back. I mean, it starts with a couple other things. But, you know, that's besides the point. That's marriage stuff. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. I find it funny. It starts with a baby, a baby of their own. For years, even decades, they waited and waited and waited for the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 15 to come to fruition, and they could never get pregnant. It got to the point that, I, look, does anybody feel old in the room? I know I do. You know, my, my, <laughs> my, my, I hope I don't embarrass my wife by saying this, but we had two kids, and after our second kid, she was like, I don't think I'm doing this ever again. <laughs> okay. And, and she's like in her early 30s. So like, so I, like, but Sarah gets to the age of, uh, help me out, Chris. I didn't research the part. She's like 90-something. And she's like waiting for this. She's never had a kid. And she's waiting for God to keep the promise that I'm going to give you crazy amount of kids. And so he, that's what, look, if anybody knows a woman, the older you get, you start to think, you know what? This might cost me a little more than <laughs> it should you know, when I was a younger woman, this might have been a little easier. But she gets up, up in age to the point where she's like, you know what? As many of us do, maybe I need to help God out. Which is another form of disobedience, just to throw that out there. But, but she decides to try to help God out. And she decides to manipulate Abraham. And, and Abraham acquiesces. He's not without fault here. Where Abraham should have manned up and w- continued to wait on the Lord as the leader he's called to be. But what does he do instead? Sarah has a slave named Hagar. She's from Egypt. When they were in Egypt, they were the foreigners. But when they got a slave in Egypt and left Egypt, she became the foreigner. An Egyptian slave girl, young girl, and the mistress says, you know what? Sleep with her. And Abraham, the next verse says, okay. Right? Anyway, Abraham, God bless him. He sleeps with a teenager, gets her pregnant. And then what happens is, is that Hagar starts to feel a little comeuppance and starts to mock Sarah, who treats her as a slave still, and say, you know what? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm a mom. <laughs> uh, I'm a mom with a kid of your husband. And so, you know what? Um, the funny thing about power, has anyone, Sorry about that. Has anyone ever, um, like, outshined a boss? Has, has anyone ever been in the throes of outshining someone above you? Yeah? How did that work out for you? Not well. Not well. Amen. Thank you. Because uh, in the book, The 48 Laws of Power, there's a rule with those who have power that if, if the people under them make, um, outshine them, that somehow they become a little threatening to the people that outshine them. That there's some balance of power where those who are under you can never move above you. That's what power does. That's what superiority does. And so now here's the young girl, which I'm sure in Sarah's mind, who is this brat? who I manipulated my husband for, to tell me. So what does she do? Scripture says that she treats her so horribly 
Any, any woman ever been bullied? Look, I don't know about y'all. I've, been, I've had a guy try to bully me, try to put his hands around my neck, and I was like, I went and got my twin brother, and we planned to beat him up. But then God intervened, so praise God. But anyway, my point is, <laughs> sorry, TMI. You know more about me. Anyway, move on with the sermon, Michael. So I've had people try to bully me, and, and it almost came to fisticuffs. Could we put an end to it? But I, look, the way women bully, listen, there's a whole art to that. Can I get an amen from somebody? So, so can you imagine the things that Sarah was doing to Hagar, a pregnant person? And she's pregnant. Like, I don't know. I, I wish there was like a TV show, like, they're just coming up with all the ways that, anyway. anyway I wish I could write sometimes, make a little t- TV pilot of some of these Bible stories. My point is that Hagar's treatment was so horrendous that she looked out at a desert. And she thought to herself, maybe it's better for me to go into the desert and potentially die, get kidnapped, or get mauled than to stay here. The thing is, is that kind of abuse, we see that even in slavery, things were good until the power started getting messed with. The manipulation of a promise began to happen. And Hagar had to bear the brunt of not just their disobedience, but even their rage. There's an abuse of power, an abuse of the promise that led ultimately to Hagar's abuse by her mistress. And what that led to was Hagar running away. Can we look at this and say that the Bible condones relationships with young teenagers? By no means. We're just looking at a cultural context where someone practices obedience to a promise. And the thing is, is I want to show you something. Um, there's, a, there's a painting. Can everyone see that? When I worked in vocational ministry, um, I uh, was with, um, it was my charge as the associate direct, national associate director of cross-cultural ministry to care for all bodies, and particularly to teach pastors and missionaries um, and elders of different churches of size, different sizes, how to be more hospitable to the other, their barbarian, you know, because there was this huge push for white churches to become diverse, and so they wanted to find out how do we make our space hospitable, and it was often my charge to help them do that, whether on campus or in a church. And uh, <laughs> um, I, after doing that work for a couple years, the missionaries of color that we would send to these white churches, I started to notice a weathering. I started to notice um, more and more stories of harm, more and more stories of abuse, more and more stories of manipulation, more and more stories of, well, um, if, well if, you don't, if you don't take them to that presidential rally, the youth group, then you, know, you can look for another job. Right? That's a huge abuse of power. Let me just reiterate, there were pastors that looked at a missionary who raised their support and were uh, uh, more melanated like me, who were told as a white church that if you don't get the, your college students and the youth to the presidential rally of whatever candidate the church espoused, you can go look for another job. That is abusive. And so I made a retreat. And I hired a, a, every day we would walk through sort of this story of Hagar and we'd walk through what it's like to be in the house of God and also be in a house of abuse. And every, at the end of every day, um, I hired an artist by the name of Megan Nazario McAllis, 
and everyone had um, their own canvases and paint, and we all, little by little, day by day, added to this portrait. And this was the final product. And so what I want to identify is that this is Hagar. Okay, you can, see, you can see it there, Carol? Okay. And so on this side of the painting is the house of Abraham, more or less like the house of God, right? There's sunshine, there's trees, um, there's cl- nice clouds, right? There's green grass, but um, you can see she f- it feels so distant. Do you see that disparity between where we see her in the frame and her in the backdrop? And so uh, it, it alludes to this experience. Have you ever been lonely in a crowd of people? Yeah? It alludes to that kind of imagery, okay? And then you see her gaze is set and fixed on the desert. And you see her, the chains represent her slavery, and the tears represent her lament. And as you can see here, there, there's not clouds, but crows looking to scavenge, right? Um, there's a, uh, the sun feels hotter here, right? There's even things looking to kill you. And when we did this um, portrait, by the end of the portrait, by the time people finished it, um, there were so many tears amongst us. It was such a tender time because so many of us felt seen. Uh, Working in the house of God, when you're a minister, it feels like everyone gets to suffer but you. At least that's that's speaking from experience, and especially in a body, in a melanated body in in North America. It feels like everyone gets to suffer except you. And the suffer that you experience, you can't always talk about. And so the, the, the experience of Hagar, this Egyptian girl, slave girl, um, is, is not only a story, but a photo. This photo is something that's dear to my heart because it gave imagery to something that I think often is hard to name. So I'll come back to this image in a little bit. But let's go back to Exodus. Let's look at Exodus 21. Uh, We're going to go through verse 16, verse 10, verse 26, and 21. Feel free to join me there in your Bibles on the pews, or just allow me to read to you like reading rainbow. Either one should be fine. I will be your LeVar Burton. If anyone knows that reference, let's be friends. Okay. Um, Exodus 21.16, does the Bible condone slavery? Verse 16? Yes, Michael, verse 16. In, in Scripture, there was uh, laws about slavery in Exodus uh, that helped determine when slaves were had by Jewish people, the do's and don'ts of slavery. So in verse 16, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Let me reiterate. Anyone that kidnaps another person right, to make them a slave, gets to die. Anybody ever heard of the movie 12 Years a Slave? According to biblical law, what happened to Solomon Northrup, that slave master, I believe he was a pastor, if I'm not mistaken, would have been put to death. So are you already seeing the difference between American slavery and slavery of the Bible? Let's, keep, let's go down a little further. Verse 10. So verse 10 says, If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. So um, 
there, there is this, um, in slavery, the black woman was not only assaulted by um, the harms of slavery, but also sex slavery, right? And with Kids in the Room, I won't go too deep into it except to say this, that um, like Hagar, to, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm realizing all I meant to say, but there's kids around, so I think I'm going to actually like nick that. <laughs> And just allow you to maybe the Holy Spirit to guide you in that text. Let's move on to verse 26. Verse 26 says, um, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. Verse 27, If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. For those of you who have studied North American slavery, and for those of you who have watched any movie about it, you know that they did way more than an eye and a tooth, amen? Check one, two, one, two. Sorry, thanks, Chris. That most, by the time slaves got to port from the middle passage, from the transatlantic slave trade, they should have been released. Do you track that? By the time they got here and the harms, the, oh, the mountainous harms that happened on the ocean, they should have been set free by the church. But was the church absent or present on those slave auctions? They were around. They were present. So does the Bible condone slavery? Yes. And that in itself is an indictment on North American slavery in the U.S. Not just the unbeliever, but all the more to the believers. So, I'll lock myself out here. So can we, what can we surmise here? Slavery laws of the Old Testament were very different than uh, the systemic generational evils and abuses and exploitative tortures of the transatlantic slave trade. Did you know, so this is a fun fact I definitely want to tell you, so please indulge me, okay? Did you know that only 4% of all slaves, the millions of slaves that were tra uh, uh, the transatlantic slave trade, it was like a lot of millions, I don't know the exact number, only 4% were transported and sold on U.S. shores. Transporter 2, forgive me. Only 4%. Of that 4%, do you have any idea how much they, that made up the GDP of the U.S. based on slave trade? Anybody have an idea? What percentage of the GDP, which is gross national domestic product, which means like your biggest money maker, your cash cow? 60%. Let me make this a little more clear to you. 4% of transatlantic slave trade ended up in the U.S. That 4% made up 60% of the gross domestic product in the U.S., which means that never has been and never since then has the U.S. depended on one commodity, one commodity for its economy. I lost my place again. <laughs> So additionally, the power dynamics in U.S. slavery stayed after slaves were freed, though. You see, it wasn't enough to have slaves. There had to be a new way to see whites and white Christians in order to survive the cognitive dissonance of harming another human. The narrative of racial difference is a thing that was fought for in Jim Crow, it was fought for in the South and in the North, and to this day, there's a belief that blacks, when they get two nickels, whites should get five dollars. I remember the first time my, my older brother um, 
when he got his doctorate, he got a big raise at this like big university. And I remember um, he had a white colleague who had a doctorate. Um, sort of, I won't say exactly what he said because it's not good to say in church. But he said something to the effect of, you know, where, where's my raise? Remember the first time my older brother got his own office, and a white colleague came up to him and said, you know, this, why'd they give you an office bigger than mine? My point is, when a slave was freed by the master in the Old Testament, they were restored to uh, a fellow civilian. And they didn't have to bow their head to anyone upon freedom, unless they chose to. But what we have to acknowledge is what Brian Stevenson calls this racial narrative. No, the narrative of racial difference, which is the false belief that black bodies, melanated bodies, if you will, black people, are inherently inferior. This has continued to haunt us in the U.S., and this false narrative of racial difference was created to justify slavery and has survived well beyond slavery's formal abolition in 1865, turning into decades of racial terror, segregation, and tokenism. Did you know that within the very generation, first generation of freed slaves, there were black millionaires? And I mean like a bunch of black millionaires, like in the 18, like 80s. Something called Black Wall Street, please look it up. We're popping up all across the U.S. You know why you don't see any of them now? Because the narrative of racial difference had to be defended. So what came about was the birth of the White Knights, Ku Klux Klan, and a bunch of other terror squads that often put down black glory, black excellence, black wealth, or just took it. Did you know that lynching in America, if you ever get a chance to go see the Equal Justice Initiative, they have a museum um, that you have to see. And I remember when I went there for the first time, I was floored by the history I didn't realize, just how much history I was, was kept from me. Did you know that the majority of black bodies who were lynched were often business owners or wealthy people? They were targeted to defend the what? The narrative of what? So does the Bible condone slavery? Because in the Old Testament, once you weren't a slave anymore, guess what? I'm not superior to you anymore. And that was conditional. Even for those who did um, um, self-selected servitude, there's an indentured servitude, they would say, you know what, instead of getting a job, I'm just going to live here. <laughs> like, I'm going to serve you. I got a buddy of mine, he's a security guard for a really wealthy family in Pittsburgh, and he's not even allowed legally to say their name. They pay him so much money that if he never wanted to work another, day, another job in his life, he could work strictly for them. In the Old Testament, that would be called indentured servitude. Like, I serve this house. You get it? But in that servitude, he would never be less than the people he's protecting. You dig? But in American slavery, North American slavery, that became part and parcel to the very trade itself. So again... When you see Apostle Paul strike at the very power dynamics 
of this. He talks about slave or free, male or female, black or white, Mexican uh, or uh, uh, Mexican-American or a Mexican without papers, Republican or Democrat, Swickley or Wilkinsburg, as I mentioned before. Uh, because at the end of the day, superiority finds its value primarily in the su uh, sustaining of inequality. Because if there's someone who's superior, there means there has to be someone who is. Come on, talk to me, church. If someone's superior, someone's got to be. And if there is someone who's inferior, then they are, it's okay to exploit them. If I can exploit them, um, then uh, maybe they aren't as human as me. So that means I can kill them. I have a friend of mine, I just met with him yesterday. He uh, serves in the military. And, I, and he was saying that he has killed uh, folks uh, for the sake of our country. But we did talk about how the fact that like in the U.S. military, whenever you're sent to an enemy, there is a process of dehumanization of the enemy. That at some point, whether through banter in the barracks or whatever, that they are, they are, they are the enemy, which means they, you know, there's this language that you have to, that you adopt where they are not like us, the bad guy. This is dehumanizing language, and it's normative for military forces to do, to aid in the cognitive dissonance of ending the life of another human. But what does this mean? Imago Dei. We all share the image of God. Imago Dei, anybody know what that means? It's Latin for image of God. And the image of God, according to Scripture, is in every human. And so to make a human less than you is to spit on the image of God. I heard a friend of mine once tell me, uh, a pastor, he was like, you know, you know how you know, you know how you deal with uh, your enemies? And this, he was like, you know how you like, know if your heart is open to loving your enemy like scripture calls you to? I was like, how? He was like, if you can't see the face of God in their face, then you, have, then you don't love them. That hit me hard, because I had some enemies at the time. <laughs> Anybody got enemies? I see you. My son raised his hand. Put your hand out. <laughs> the thing is, is that and even my enemy, if, they, if I cannot see the face of God in their face, how can I say that I love them? You see, the image of God, it, it, um, the image of God is, is essential to uh, Christ's blood because it is open to all. Because all bear his image. And by the blood of Christ, we're restored into union and right relationship with God. It's in every face. It's the face of every Native American from the Trail of Tears and even to now. It's in the faces of those mass graves that keep finding, of Native American kids. It's in the faces of Uyghurs in concentration camps. It's in the Uyghur of black and brown babies and mothers and fathers overcrowded working in cobalt mines that are deadly to the human body. I think it's cobalt. It's in the Congo, I know that. The, Im the image of God is in a, the faces of our political rivals, even if they live next door. The image of God is in the face of the unhoused in our city as well as the housed. Amen? If we don't exploit 
the other. If we don't let anyone be inferior to, inferior to us, Michael, then what do we do? Well, we bind our liberation with theirs and care for them as kin do. If there is no coercion, then what do we do, Michael? We hold each other accountable and honor each other's boundaries in the name of the Lord. We love each other in the name of the Lord, and when we harm one another, we repair. Look at your neighbor and say, that means make it right. Because scripture is not this, this, this charge. The Bible doesn't charge us to perfectionism. The Bible does not charge us to never sin. Amen? The Bible does charge us to repair. That is the biblical story, that, that we sinned against God, and God did all the work to repair with us. How can we not do the same? If we can't do the same with our brother and sister, how can we actually say that we ever loved him for his repair on the cross? I'm going to wrap it up. You know, African-American slavery is easy to see as history, but what I need you to hear me saying this morning, um, even though there's many other slaveries I could talk about, but because it's the anniversary of black history in February, what I need you to hear me saying is similar to the words of Paul, Paul, is that if we step out of this church and put back on the haughty eyes of superiority to anyone we are near, um, we cut their bodies on the teeth of the enemy as we ourselves are close enough to the enemy's bite to smell its breath. And now I just want to say this. I cannot tell you all the ways, I don't have time to tell you, all the ways in which as a melanated Christian man that I have experienced the narrative of racial difference in the church explicitly. The first time I was called the N-word was at a Christian college by a white Christian. The, most of my first with like, experiencing racism was in the church, particularly in the North. And what I want to acknowledge is that there are things that to date live amongst our cultural norms outside and in the church that at the end of the day, we have to deal with. So as I talk about slavery, I know this talk is about slavery, but I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about that. There are things, look, let me say it like this. There are ways your body reacts to a group of black 12-year-old boys walking in a mall that is residue of slavery. Okay? There are ways your body reacts to a group of black women laughing loudly in a restaurant. Like, that is rooted to the narrative of racial difference. You inherited that. There are ways your body reacts when a grandson or granddaughter brings home a melanated potential romantic partner and that little tweak that you feel to say, well, are you sure you want to date them? That's all stems from the narrative of racial difference, which is antithetical to the very thing that Scripture teaches. Let's open up our Bibles to, or actually just look at the screen, right? Proverbs 6, 16 and 19, would you please? From the NIV. Um, can you, would you read this with me? There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict. I have not found a better summation of North American slavery in all my days. 
There's one word I want to expound on for you, and then we'll close. Dearly beloved, haughtiness, haughty, H-A-U-G-H-T-I-N-E-S-S. Look it up. It's the process of looking at someone as inferior to you. God hates that. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could face God on judgment day having taken on the cross. And let's admit, when you're a Christian, you deny a lot of temptations, amen? You say no to a lot of things that would feel great, amen? Can you imagine doing all that and getting to God, but you still had haughty eyes and him being like, look, I don't even want to know what that feels like. But all I know is that means that you and I got some work to do because there's not a body in this room, no matter your melanin, that wasn't taught some haughtiness from the culture you come from. Amen? Listen, I'm light-skinned. In the black community, there is judgment based on how dark you are. The lighter black people see me with contempt, and those that are darker than me, I'm supposed to see with contempt. Haughtiness. So there's stuff I got to work on, but that's no excuse for you, my unmelanated brother and sister. Okay? Okay? We all got some repenting to do, amen? Because I know for sure, if you're like me, that you don't want to face God with a haughty eye on the left or the right. It would be better to gouge it out than to face God. Dearly beloved, guard your hearts. For what use it is, to, is it to dedicate your souls to God, but our hearts and minds um, do not reflect that, but actually reflect things he hates. Can we put up the picture of Hagar one more time, please? Have you ever felt like the object of inferiority in someone's eyes? Have you ever felt like the object of inferiority to the point where someone has harmed you and continues to harm you at work or at home or or in the community? If you have known this kind of harm, then you can relate to Hagar. For some of us, maybe you can relate to Sarah. Maybe you have caused harm because of maybe there's a college roommate you did something to that you're still a little guilty about, but you know, it's fine. Each of us, I think in some way, shape, or form can connect. Either causing someone to look at a desert as something that would be more of a reprieve than staying here, or maybe you. You know, when I was at a Christian college at Grove City, I felt so beaten down, um, uh, because I never saw myself as inferior until I went and was surrounded by a bunch of white Christians. It got so bad. I got so depressed. I spent so many nights in the chapel weeping that I actually started to look. Uh, I bought my first Quran. Because I started to think, surely, surely, I, I must be like in the wrong like, house of God. Because how I feel, I don't feel like I belong here. And I beseech the Holy Spirit to guide me. Jesus, I was like, Jesus, I know you're real. Or Isa, as they call him uh, in, in the Quran. And you know what happened? The Holy Spirit showed up and reminded me who Jesus is. 
And the Holy Spirit reminded me that Jesus of the, um, of the Bible is who he is, who he says he is. And that Muslim culture gets it better than Protestant culture does. In regards to how we treat melanated bodies in the space based on power. And so it refortified my commitment to Jesus Christ. And refortified my commitment and why I spent so many years of cross-cultural ministry serving the church was because I realized that the church is getting it wrong. And if we're getting it wrong, how can we face a God that we deny so much for that may deny us? So with that being said, guard your hearts, brothers and sisters. But I would like you, I would like us, we're going to play some worship music. Um, and I just want you to open your hearts to where have you felt like Hagar? Are you in between a, a house of harm and a desert? Are you in a space in your life where you're wondering which is better? Please. Where have you known harm? I want you to know that, that God um, did not leave Hagar alone. You know what God did to Hagar? Give her a blessing. Anybody know what God did to Hagar when she ran away? She did run away. Sent her, before she sent him, he sent him back to Sarah. Yes. God, the, the angel of the Lord sent her back to Sarah, but what happened? He made a promise that her son would thrive. What else? And become a nation. This little Egyptian slave girl in the middle of a desert, she already ran away, pregnant. The angel of the Lord shows up to her and reminds her of these things. And do you know that Hagar is the first person in the Bible to give God a name? All scripture. There's many words. Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Shema, Je- Jehovah Rohi. There's all these words for God, names for God. But Hagar, an Egyptian slave girl, is the first to give God a name. And you know what that name is? It's El Roi. R-O-I. And that means the God who sees me. That's the same God who showed up to me in the chapel of Grove City uh, College when I was wondering if I was in the right religion because of how I was treated in my melanated body. And he saw me. And I want you to know that El Roy sees you. So why don't you take some time in prayer and reflect on this and then we'll close.